Seth Spins contains mild adult language. The views of the members of this podcast do not reflect the views of Viking Fusion or Viking Fusion staff. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to Seth Spins. This is a brand new season. We're on number three at this point, which is pretty exciting. We've been doing pretty well. Um, I'm really excited to get back into it, and today I have a very special guest. This is actually our graphic designer for the podcast, uh, Mr. Jack Hiramo. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Jack Hiramo, and I'm the graphic designer for this podcast. Yeah, he does a lot of other things, too, like listen to a little bit of music, right? I do. I really do love music. I play music. Um, just, yeah, just fell in love with music at a love age. Mm-hmm. Or, what kind of music do you like to play? Um, specifically, I, I tend to lean towards... Um, more late 60s, early 70s stuff. I love the Allman Brothers. I love Paul Simon. I love Bob Dylan. I love the Dead. I love uh, all of that kind of cosmic, folky rock kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Also a little bit of like a singer-songwriter slant a little bit too, I would yeah. say. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so we talked a little bit about what you're particularly interested in. And one thing that I found really eye-catching was listening to you talk about the Grateful Dead and just sort of the idea of a jam band in general. So I wanted to get a little bit into that sort of culture because it can be a little bit, you know, clicky and hard to understand if you're not already immersed in that culture. Right. Um, so I just wanted to kind of prod your mind a little bit about that. So as sort of the first quintessential jam band uh, sort of burst onto the musical scene, the Grateful Dead brought live recordings and improvisational riffs towards the forefront of popular music during the early, you know, 60s or so. And then you have other bands like Fish that sort of get onto that same scene and try to do similar stuff. Why is it that the Grateful Dead is the one that we think of? Why is the first jam band the most popular? Like, why is that the one that sticks with everyone, do you feel like? Well, I, I think I have two ideas for that. And the the my personal opinion one is that all the other jam bands just suck. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I cannot stand Fish. I don't, I don't really tend to lean towards other uh, jam bands. And I think those tend to be even more, you know, clicky and more difficult to listen to than... Um, the Grateful Dead, and I, I, I also like the Grateful Dead, and I, I think this might be the reason is just because they were the first, um, and you know, they were in San Francisco in the late 60s, and they just started doing all these free concerts, and they're um, just, just having a good time and letting people record their shows and uh, trade them, and that kind of became a quintessential part of jam band culture is like live recordings and stuff like that. So you say it's not just the fact that they sort of created this new subgenre of music, but also that they're coming in at a time when psychedelic in general is sort of a new idea. And so the fact that they're able to combine those into something completely brand new has sort of stood the test of time, you would say. I would say so. Absolutely. I would agree with that. Um, so do you think that improvisational aspect in some ways draws parallels to some other genres of music. So like, for example, I know when I'm listening to music, I think jazz has a very similar ideal when you think about like, oh, each performance is different. Each performance has its own unique nuances that make it interesting to listen to. I know you talked about specifically the Europe 72 mm-hmm. uh, recording, and it's, I'm assuming it's just one of your favorite sort of playings, for lack of a better term, of that music. Right. So would you say that that sort of draws parallels in some way? Yeah, so I, I can definitely see jazz inspiration, especially um, there's there's a couple recordings from the '90s where they're just they're playing along with some saxophone players who are just going on off on these riffs, and it's just uh, really improvisational, and you can definitely tell it's jazz inspired, but also um, a, a blues inspiration too. Um, I, I know Jerry Garcia was a huge fan of bluegrass, and he was a huge fan of Muddy Waters, um, and 
you know, early, early blues legends and then also bluegrass. And both of those kind of have a lot to do with just really, really skillful guitar playing and, um, you know, quick thinking. And I think that definitely translates into their music. Mm -hmm. What got you into it? So I remember, so a lot of people would say drugs, but this is my, this is my disclaimer that I've never done a drug before in my life. Um, I actually started liking the Grateful Dead from the SATs. Um, that's a story. So, that's a story in and of so itself. So I, I was a junior in high school, and I was taking the SATs, and the college board is probably going to blackmail me for, for saying <laughs> this on this podcast. Uh, but there is an essay question mm-hmm. that was all about the Grateful Dead's marketing mm-hmm. um, and talking about you know taping live shows and um, just kind of being loose with copyright restrictions and how that – became a really, really important staple of their band's culture um, and how they built a brand identity as a band. And, you know, as, as a graphic designer and as a creative, I love brand identity. Um, so I was really interested in that. And I listened to them a good bit. I, not not a good bit, but just every once in a while. I knew, like, two or three of their greatest hits, Boxer Rain, Friend of the Devil, um, that kind of stuff. And I was walking around campus um, at Barry my freshman year, and this guy came up to me. And he was like, hey, guess what I'm listening to? And I was like, what? And he puts his he puts his headphone in my ear, and it was a song, and I had never heard it before. And he was like, it's a dead. You're a deadhead, right? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and I, I just I just did not recognize the song at all. And I just like felt like such an imposter. And I'm like, oh, if I if I'm gonna be if I'm gonna say that I, you know, subscribe to this band, then I have to, mm-hmm. you know, actually learn to listen to them. So um just throughout the last couple of years, I've just been spending a lot of time uh, listening, especially to, like you said, Europe 72 mm-hmm. is just a really, really fantastic tour. Um, but it, it was it was a very slow process that started from the SATs. That's such a good origin for that. <laughs> so when you're talking about Europe 72, there's very clearly something that draws you to that particular recording, that particular live album. Is it this crop of songs that sort of put into that? Is it the performances? Is it a combination? Is it just what you happen to listen to? Is it, what is it? Um, so, oh man, that's a good question. I think for me, one thing that really stood out to me was, um, the album art. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you look at the Europe 72 albums, they all have these like very cartoony, yeah. but all, it, they're really interesting, like illustrations. Especially for um, the time. Yeah. Especially for the time. And I know that that artist, or maybe not that artist, but an artist who worked for, the Grateful Dead went on to work for like Terrapin Brewing out of Athens, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with Terrapin Brewing. But, mm-hmm. you know, they just have really, really cool artists and they have really cool artwork on their albums. Um, so Europe 72 especially stuck out to me. There's there's one of a kid and he's got this spiky hair and he's got like these big teeth and a big nose. And he's just like smashing an ice cream cone into his head. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, that's the cover album for, or the cover art for the Europe 72 just volume one, just all their greatest hits from mm-hmm. uh, Europe 72. Um, and that one especially, I was just like, dang, this is really cool. It almost um, looks like computer generated, which yeah. is really weird given the fact that it's from the 70s. Like we forced an AI to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like to watch Toy Story 20 years into the future and then come back with that knowledge and yeah. make something that looks better, question mark? Yeah, it, it looks good. I like it. And then on top of that, um, yeah, the songs are good, um, especially especially with volume one. I, I really like um, mm-hmm. like. Brown-Eyed Women and uh, Jack Straw, um, to name a few, Ramble on Rose. Um, so 
yeah, I I think that was when it really clicked for me was when I was listening to Europe 72. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, okay, I get this. This is because especially with a jam band, live albums are just so different from their studio Absolutely. albums. Absolutely. No, it's, I, I was doing a lot of research on the Grateful Dead, but also just jam bands in general to prepare for this. And something that I found really interesting is that this is one of the only genres where live albums are sort of the cream of the crop. Like nobody's going into the Grateful Dead, at least once they're a fan of the Grateful Dead and thinking that the studio albums are absolutely the 100% best way to listen to their music. Like people right. go into it because of the fact that their favorite recordings are very particular to that one show. Yeah, and you you really do tend to uh, to identify with members of the band, mm-hmm. um, and once you learn about it and you you learn who's singing and who's you know playing what instruments and stuff, you really start to like become fans of people in the band, and um, yeah, and then and then you listen to the songs that you know. For me, I really like Bobby, who's the who's the lead guitar player um, or rhythm guitar, because Jerry Garcia mm-hmm. is the lead guitar player. Um, but but Bobby Weir is just a, a really really phenomenal lead guitar player um, mm-hmm. or rhythm guitar sorry, and so I really love the songs that he sings. Um, so when you listen to the live albums, yeah, he's you know you you gravitate towards the ones that emphasize the members of the band that you like. Did the members ever rotate, or is it just has it been a stagnant cast since their inception? Uh, they have rotated. Um, so one of the founding members is also one of the members of the 27 Club. His name is uh, Pigpen. They called him Pigpen. Mm-hmm. Um, he was really phenomenal harmonica player, really good vocalist. Um, but he died, I, I think, in 72 or 73, um, mm-hmm. early 70s. Was he on Europe 72? I believe so. Uh, yeah, he was. Um, and so he he was a founding member of the band. He was kind of the heart and soul of the band for a little bit. And so he died. Um but a lot of the founding members stayed with them, you know, up until Jerry Garcia died in uh, the 90s. I, I forget the mm-hmm. year, but Jerry Garcia died in, I think, the mid-90s. Um, but I know that Bob Weir stayed with them. I know that um, one of their drummers, Mickey Hart, has been there for quite a while. And then the other drummer, Bill Krishman or something like mm-hmm. that, um, he's been there for quite a while. But they have a bassist named Phil Lesh, who was there for a while. Um it's definitely rotated, but mm-hmm. a lot of their members have but, but have stuck with them for quite given a Given their huge amount of live performances, it's interesting to see that they haven't really rotated as much as you would think, mm-hmm. given especially how long they've been doing it. Right. So it's it's interesting because one of the bands that just kind of pops up into my mind when I think of similar ideas, and I know it's not particularly similar, but I think of King Crimson for some reason okay. because of just a similar time period, similar style. And what's interesting about that is that that band, despite the fact that they're so famous in what they do, they've rotated their entire, you know, cast yep. between one studio album, you right. know, and it's like, a, it's almost a completely different band. Like, you can listen to In the Core of the Crimson King, and that's one thing, and then you can go to, like, Indiscipline or whatever, and it's mm-hmm. like, this sounds like Tool more than it sounds yeah. like In the Core of the Crimson King. It's crazy to think about. But um, going a little bit more about the Grateful Dead, I think something that catches my eye as somebody who's not quite entrenched in the culture a little bit is I think the merch is really, really cool. <laughs> like their whole like logos, like everything about it is just very, very interesting. Do you own any of that merch? Has it ever caught your eye as a graphic oh, designer man. especially? Yeah, so um, I have I have two officially licensed Grateful Dead shirts. One of them is from Target. Um, and it's, Sweet. <laughs> it's the it's the skull that you see everywhere. It's like a skull with a red and white circle with a lightning bolt going through it. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of like sports teams and a lot of people use that skull for like merchandise and stuff like that. Um, 
just as Grateful Dead. And then I have another one that's the kid from the Europe 72 album smashing the ice cream cone into his head. Um, yeah. And then, and then as a graphic designer, how that's inspired me, uh, Barry students will remember Martha Palooza mm-hmm. 2020 um, was 60s psychedelic uh, Woodstock piece, Love and Martha um, themed. And I know for, for me, I was a graphic designer for them too. And all the staff t-shirts were the, um, they call them the Jerry Bears, um, the mm. the five bears that are like kind of dancing and stepping. Um, but I turned them into deer for Barry College. So that's that's one inspiration um, model, I guess. What do you think about that like interesting like reflective sort of design that they have on a lot of their merch? That's kind of like a greenish pink. Cr- you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. What do you think of that as a graphic designer? Because I'm I'm kind of perplexed on if it's like terrible or great. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I because Chrome is kind of like a cardinal sin in yeah. some instances. But I just want to know what you think of that. I like it. I mean, I I really like it. I I really love most of their artwork in all of their album covers. Um, yeah, and and another thing about their merch is just how much it sells for. Um, mm-hmm. If if you go on you know Mercari or one of these resell websites and you look up Grateful Dead shirt like you'll find stuff from the 90s that people are selling for like is it $350 is it specifically like tour shirts or is it like yeah. do they sell merch aside from tours like how does that work no it's, it's usually tour shirts um from certain tours and like 80s and 90s mostly mm-hmm. is what you'll find um, I, I could see that being particularly interesting for a band that makes almost all of their material mm-hmm. come from touring is like those band yeah. shirts are going to mean so much more to someone because yeah. they were there to recording that they really enjoy yeah which is just so much different from like you know any other artist that i can think of off the top of my head it's also surprising just how much it sells for because they've been together for so long and they've been touring since, you know, the late 60s. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're still kind of touring today as Dead & Company. Right. Um, but, yeah, that you know, you have a discography of almost 50 years and, you know, the, the market isn't, like, flooded with Grateful Dead merch T-shirts. Right. But, you know, these are really rare things that people sell for, you know, hundreds of dollars. Do you want to touch on Dead and Company for a little bit? Yeah. Um, so, so Dead and Company is the rebirth of the Grateful Dead um, for the 21st century. Um, Jerry Garcia died in the 90s. Uh, I think they toured a little bit after that, but w- without you know your lead man, your lead vocalist, mm-hmm. lead uh, guitar player, it's it's difficult to do it's, that. It's almost so, a different band. So, to to come back from that, they joined up with John Mayer. Um, really? Yeah. So John Mayer replaced Jerry Garcia, um, and then they have a couple other guys. There's a guy named I, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's, it's o- Odell o- Odell Burbridge or Ober- something like that. But okay. he he's a uh, he's a bassist. He played with the Allman Brothers. Um, mm-hmm. Really, really fantastic bassist um, and vocalist too. He sings one or two of their songs. Um, but yeah, it's it's the same thing where they tour every summer almost, and um, you know, go to Atlanta, go to boulder go to wherever and they mm-hmm. record all their live shows and uh release them under dead and company but it's all the same it's all it's all grateful dead albums they just they don't so record any so it's kind of like a super group in the 21st yeah. century playing grateful dead material yeah but i mean it's it's many of the original band band members so like bob weir is still there and mm-hmm. uh mickey hart one of the drummers is still there and bill krishman one of the drummers and maybe someone else i'm not entirely sure but mm-hmm. Alrighty. Um, another thing you mentioned before the podcast was that you were interested in Paul Simon particularly. Yeah. And this is separate from Simon and Garfunkel. Like you're you're very interested in his solo career more so. 
Yeah, I mean, I I, I adore Simon and Garfunkel, um, mm-hmm. but Paul Simon is just incredible. I, I really, really love Paul Simon. Because mm-hmm. he definitely goes in sort of a different lane as a solo artist. And I, I think, honestly, a more artistic lane, if you were to mm-hmm. ask me personally. I don't know if that's, you know, the popular opinion or whatever, but I just feel like when I think of, you know, Graceland, for example, yeah. it's just a completely different ballgame. So following his split with Art Garfunkel, he sort of poured everything into his solo career. So he sort of culminates into a classic of Graceland. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's what we need to talk about here. Yeah. So while incorporating more typical genre elements, you have like pop and rock going into there for sure. The creative direction also includes elements from more like international music, honestly. Yeah. So you have like um, Mexican-American artists featured on there, South African musicians, like all different kinds of cultures sort of go into Graceland. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you consider that widespread appeal and longevity, why does this sort of eclectic record resonate with so many people? I mean, Paul Simon is is just a classic, and a lot of people, you know, you know, Sound of Silence, you know, Paul Simon's work, mm-hmm. um, The Boxer. Uh, so, so you already have this emotional connection to Paul Simon, and then his solo career up until then was incredible. Me and Julio down by the schoolyard, Kodachrome. Um, and then, yeah, as, as you sh- shift into Graceland, um, you just see this full embrace, embrace of world music, um, which just really, really goes on to define his career. And if you look at his albums from the 80s and 90s and even recently, um, yeah, it, he, he's just playing with these incredible musicians from, uh, from other continents that are just, you know, you, you never heard of them, but they're just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think of one one band that he always plays with is Lady Smith Black Mambazo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also plays with Urubamba a lot, and both of those are both, you know, world music bands, and they're just really very good. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they add a lot to his sound. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's him realizing that, you know, he can do this, and, like, he can do it very well. Um, Absolutely. So, so Yeah. So when you look at this record, because I, I, I see it as a pop record first and foremost, mm-hmm. and I know that's kind of an odd designation considering that it's so much more than that. But um, obviously, given that it has world music influences, international influences, it's kind of eclectic to listen to, despite the fact that it's got a lot of widespread appeal. Are there tracks within the track listing that sort of resonate with you personally? Like, is there a style that you sort of gravitate to in that album? Or are you more of like a straight down the track list, <laughs> like this is just my favorite album by Paul Simon kind of thing. Um, I, I really do stick to the A side of the album. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first six or seven songs, and then towards the end, there's a, there's a couple songs, um, Crazy Love and stuff like that. I just, I just don't listen to it as much. Would you, would you say that that A side, B side is like completely different in style? To an extent. I mean, some of them are similar. I like Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes and Crazy Love are two very similar songs. Um, but I mean, for the most part, because because the A side is still very diverse too. Because you mm-hmm. have um, Graceland, which is just this really cool, fast moving, like it sounds like you're on a train song almost. And then you mm-hmm. also have Homeless, which is um, primarily in another language, and it's it's Lady Smith, Black Mombazo, just just going at it i mean they're awesome harmonizing and stuff so it's two completely different vibes just on one side of the album um so comparing the a side and the b side i think they're pretty similar but the tracks themselves on both sides are Mm -hmm. very different from each other it's probably 
besides maybe London Calling, it's probably the biggest double album I can think of. Why is that double album the one that sticks with people? <laughs> because those are those are notoriously hard to get into the mainstream as entire albums. It almost never happens. I think it's because it, it's just it's good. I mean, mm-hmm. I there's a lot of hits on the album. Um, so why it sticks with people is because people love Paul Simon Sound, and um, he's doing something new. And a lot of times that doesn't pay off, but he mm-hmm. executed it just just perfectly. And um, I, I think people recognize that when they listen to the album at least it's also like way scarier when you go on spotify to look at uh, graceland because spotify likes to do like deluxe super <laughs> deluxe ultimate deluxe and it's like there are 87 songs in here <laughs> it's and then the next one has range. 125 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just impossible to find stuff would you say that graceland is like the work that you need to look at when you're listening to paul simon or looking to listen to paul simon and I'm sure that you would say, like, to an extent, yes, that is what you need to look toward. But, like, are there other projects that you think are worth delving into? Yeah, so my, my top three albums um, would be Graceland uh, at number one. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorite albums of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, des- definitely a Desert Island album. Um, mm-hmm. And then There Goes Rhyme and Simon is uh, the one that has Kodachrome on it. Um, it's, you know, within 10 years of Graceland. It's from the early 70s, I think. And it's just completely, completely different vibe. Um, it's still got, you know, kind of Simon and Garfunkel vibes on it, mm-hmm. where it's just really singer-songwriter, soft, mellow. Um, so, so I would say listen to both of those. and Because mm-hmm. they're sufficiently different at that point, yes, too. Because th- Graceland was a turning point in his career, mm-hmm. absolutely. They're massively different, and you can definitely tell that shift when you listen to the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also has a live album called Live Rhyming, um, where he sings a lot of Simon and Garfunkel songs and a lot of his early solo career stuff. That's also a very fantastic album. But he's also with um, Urubamba and mm-hmm. uh, the Jesse Dixon singers, so he's still getting some of that, you know, world music too. And that's and that's like modern. That's that's coming from this decade, last decade, sort of. No, that's from the mid seventies. Mid seventies. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Is he still active? Is he still doing music? He he is still doing music. I am not. I don't think he's releasing. Well, I'll say this. I saw him. For his farewell tour, okay, in 2018. So, um, so, so he's not touring anymore. Twilight of his career is what you would say. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, it's like he's he's active with big air quotes. Yeah, going on. and you know he's he's in his mid 70s right now. Right. Um, but he's active. He's still. I think he's still releasing music, mm-hmm. um, or at least writing music. He had a he had a big album a couple years ago called, uh, In the Light or Blue Light or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um. And it was kind of just a cover album of himself right. just releasing a bunch of songs, but now he's old. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's still he's still active with, with Scare Quotes, I would say. Well, it's, it's interesting when you look at artists that have gotten into their 60s and 70s and 80s because bar, I think, maybe David Bowie, most artists do not have a resurgence late, late into their career. Mm-hmm. It just never happens. Like, I would, I could bet probably a lot of money on the fact that Paul Simon won't make another, quote, classic album at this point, because right. it just doesn't happen. There's this um, talk that always goes around that's like, you know, once you're out of your 20s, 30s, you're not going to make any more music that's quite going to grab audiences unless you've already established that. What right. do you think about that? I think to an extent I completely agree with that. Um, one outlier, I would say, is probably Dylan. Bob Dylan um, was another one I was going to mention, yes. Just just because, I mean, you look at Freewheeling Bob Dylan, um, mm-hmm. one of his really early albums, and yeah, it's it's really gripping, and it's really lyrical, and it's really poetic. Um, and you look at uh, 
for example, Rough and Rowdy Ways, which is his most recent album. He released mm-hmm. it um, a couple months ago, and it's mm-hmm. it's equally as as gripping. Um, completely different vibe, but it's still, it's still the same. It's still incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's just because I'm biased because you know I love Bob Dylan, but um, yeah, even even his stuff, you know, '80s, '90s, 2000s is just as good as his stuff in the 60s it might be because i know when i think of like david bowie or i think of bob dylan a lot of the time their music does kind of fall into a similar vibe and i feel like a lot of artists try to change that later in their career Mm -hmm. like i know if i listen to hunky dory hunky dory (laughs) and then i go straight to black star like those are very different albums extremely different topics but they still have that characteristic david bowie Mm -hmm. sound and with, like, Bob Dylan, I know, like, Highway 61 Revisited is going to sound very different from Rough and Rowdy Ways, mm-hmm. but they still fall into a Bob Dylan album. Yeah. And I think that's hard to sort of nuance and explain, but there's definitely something there to be said about that. I think of, like, The Cure also when I think of this kind of stuff where it's like, those albums are different, but they're characteristically The Cure, you know? Yeah. So I think that's just an interesting topic to go into. Yeah, I... I... With Dylan, it's it's special because he has arthritis and he can't play guitar anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, he he, what does he, do? he plays he plays piano. Um, okay. Yeah, and he's he's a piano player now, which is really interesting because he has to adjust his music to that. Um, like I saw I saw him live also, um, October of twenty eighteen, and yeah, he's just sitting at a piano the entire concert, um, and then occasionally he'll get up and his band will play and he'll like do a little jig to, to like an instrumental part but for the most part he's sitting at his piano just playing so you, you see songs like um uh like a rolling stone that he has mm-hmm. to like really slow down and it's like this like jazzy like lounge song now <laughs> um when he plays it live <laughs> and it's you know this isn't this isn't the highway 61 revisited that i fell mm-hmm. in love with but it's very different um it's so, like a cover he didn't mean to make <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like the equivalent of making like an acoustic cover of a rap song. <laughs> like, you, know, you take something really good and you turn it into just something that's kind of <laughs> not what it's supposed to be. But mm-hmm. you know, but in a way, it's perfect. You know, in, in a way, yeah, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll work at that. But yeah. Um, so, so there's very clearly because I, I put this down in my notes. You have a very clear interest in '60s and '70s psychedelic music. I feel like that's sort of an angle that you appreciate in particular. Yeah. And so I wanted to just kind of bring up a couple of you know different bands that i didn't get to put in okay. here um i know that i actually you mentioned it today and i was completely taken by surprise i was like oh, i'm gonna talk about jefferson airplane he's not gonna notice it coming but you <laughs> totally mentioned it yesterday <laughs> but um like surrealistic pillow is one i think of that i think is incredible yeah um i think of the 13th floor elevator self-titled record i think that's absolutely great um and just a couple of others that can sort of pop up in my mind but are there any albums that you just also think of that you want to talk about in particular um surrealistic pillow for sure um that's fantastic fantastic album um it's it's really the only jefferson airplane that i listen to regularly absolutely um and my roommate who has also been on the podcast um would would vouch for uh jefferson airplane He, he he's a bigger fan than i am but um uh yeah surrealistic pillow and then i you didn't mention them but the band Mm-hmm. Um, are kind of a late '60s, early '70s. Like I, I would call it cosmic country. Um, not necessarily psychedelic, not necessarily country, but somewhere in between. Um, you know, they're out of Woodstock, so they're not in the San Francisco psychedelic scene, but they're also just phenomenal. I mean, they're they're probably one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, 
and and they were you know on that same train they were hanging out with the grateful dead hanging out with bob dylan um playing at woodstock stuff like that so i I would definitely draw attention to them specifically music from the big pink um and their self-titled brown album which some people call across the great divide but i think it's just a self-titled album Mm -hmm. um those two albums specifically are just phenomenal i mean just just masterpieces well i mean i've exhausted my notes is there anything else you want to mention before we sign off uh i think i'm i think i'm good feeling good all righty um well this has been the season premiere of season three i'm really excited that you got to come on finally i'm excited Um, to be here excited to finally bring some seniors on before they leave (laughs) it's pretty exciting stuff but i hope you enjoyed this i think it was a great time i think we had a great conversation um and then yeah so please stay tuned in we're gonna have more episodes coming thank you thanks thank you guys for coming thank you jack